because all of me loves all of you. Love your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. Give your all to me, I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. I wrote that song. No, I didn't. Um, I, I love, I, I'm a sucker for good love songs, right? And that's, I think, one of the best, more recent ones. How about this one? Have you heard this? I won't sing them. I think the lyrics of love songs can be really marvelous. How about this one? You might know it. Heart beats fast. Colors and promises. How to be brave. How can I love when I'm afraid to fall? But watching you stand alone, all of my doubt suddenly goes away somehow. I have died every day waiting for you. Darling, don't be afraid. I have loved you for a thousand years. And I'll love you for a thousand more. I wish I wrote that one. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, if you think they're good, wait till you hear some of the lyrics of love songs from K-pop supergroup BTS. This one's from this single called Coffee. Baby, baby, you're a caramel macchiato. Your scent is still sweet on my lips. Baby, baby, tonight. They're geniuses, really. Um, how about this from their single, Where Did You Come From? Your face is so small and pretty. You look fresh like a salad. So smooth. Did you eat? I'm not just hitting on you. Want to get a cup of coffee? They must really like coffee. Is coffee okay? Pretty eyes, pretty nose. You're so pretty. Just looking at you makes me happy. But where did you come from? You're so pretty. Wow, and you wonder why they're famous. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to make fun of BTS. Um, uh, talking about love songs, in the Old Testament from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, God wrote his people a heartfelt love song. Let me show you what it says. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Now, as you read that, if it's ringing a bell to the Mark 12 passage that Rachel just read, it's for a reason. It's clearly the background, isn't it, of Jesus' parable in Mark 12, the language of digging and the clearing and the watchtower. That's exactly almost the words of Jesus in his parable. Now, um, this parable of Jesus in Mark chapter 12 is the last parable in Mark's biography of Jesus' life. And it's actually the only parable in the second half of Mark. Now, you remember the first half of the Gospel of Mark asks the question, who is Jesus? And it's a bit of a mystery until chapter 8, the middle, the turning point, 
we find out that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's chosen king. The second half, which we're in, chapters 8 to 16, answers the question, well, what does it mean for him to be the Messiah? And this parable, situated in the second half, being a long, drawn-out parable, is going to reveal the heart of the gospel, of why Jesus is here. What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? And it's going to reveal to us the heart of God. So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's pray and let's get into it. Father God, we pray that as we uh, read this parable with the love song that you have for your people ringing in our ears, that we might see what you have done for your people. And that might make our hearts ache to know you and to know Jesus whom you've sent. Amen. Um, there are actually three key moments in this parable, and it's marked by each time there is a speech that's quoted, a direct quotation. So I've got three points on your island you can follow. Um, but let me read the first, um, we're up to point number one. Let me read the first section, um, which will be marked by the end, at, at the end of the first section, by the first quote. So chapter uh, 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. It's Isaiah 5 language, isn't it? Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. All right, so there's no doubt in our minds because of the parallel to Isaiah 5 that this vineyard, this, in this parable, this story with a message, this vineyard stands for God's people Israel. That's what we find out from Isaiah 5. But like Isaiah 5, we also see that this is a love song. Well, the, Isaiah 5 is a love song, so when Mark picks it up, it picks up the love and care behind this story. Uh, God is the master. That's pretty clear, right? God tends to his precious people. God cares for them. God protects them. God loves them. But like any owner of a vineyard, he also expects fruit. That's why you plant a vineyard, so you can harvest the fruit, make wine, and so on. Um, and that reminds us a couple of weeks ago, we, oh, actually just last week, remember we looked at Jesus cursing the fig tree for its lack of fruit? We were reminded that fruitfulness is part of what God wants of His people as He loves them. Now, we didn't read the rest of Isaiah 5, but in Isaiah 5, we actually, this is mostly a love song, but it's a tragic love song, and the people coming under judgment because they're being fruitless. Now, Jesus' parable has a different focus, doesn't it? He, he's not focusing on the vineyard. He's focusing on the tenants, right? It doesn't say anything about God's people being fruitless or the vineyard being fruitless. The problem here is the tenants, those entrusted with the care of the vineyard while the master is absent and the focus is really on them. Now, in Jesus' day, there were lots and lots of land owned by wealthy landowners but tended by others that they hired to tend them. Uh, it's a little bit like, I suppose, um, nowadays if you go on Airbnb, right, and uh, you find, especially in major cities, uh, we did this in Melbourne, you find an apartment right in the middle of Melbourne, um, who owns them? Often they're wealthy um, people from China, and sometimes it's their kids uh, who are here studying, and they're managing it for them, or others managing it for them. Uh, lots of property, as you know, is being... Um, well, the prices will be inflated because it's bought by overseas investors. It's a little bit like that. It's an investor, buy a property, and it's being managed by others. Now, if it was just normal farmland, what you would usually do is that the tenants would plant their own crops. So it would be like, here's the land, 
plant whatever crops you want and give me a share of your profits, monetary profits. Vineyards are different, of course, because vines actually take years to mature. So the vines are already there, but they take four or five years before you get your really good first harvest. And so this is a long-term project. Long-term care is needed, and the timing is going to be years, not year by year. But when the time does come, four, five, six years later, well, the master is right to expect some fruit or some wine from the harvest, from the tenants. So that's what he's asking for. He wants what's owed him because of his vineyard. But the shocking twist comes at harvest time. Look, let's keep reading verse 3. But they, the tenants, seized him, that's the servant that he uh, sends, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. Now, do you get the various parallels, right? We already saw the vineyard is God's people, Israel, Old Testament people, the Jewish people. The tenants and the farmers, well, they're clearly Israel's leaders. Now, if we're in any doubt of that, verse number 12, the last verse the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they basically were the people in charge of the Jewish nation, right? They knew that Jesus was speaking against them. So the tenants are them, the leaders of the people. And in the context, uh, we didn't read um, the bit before it and the rest of chapter 12, but you've got Jesus having seven confrontations with the leadership. And this is number two of seven, all right? So if the vineyard is God's people, the tenants are the leaders, then... Who are the servants from the master? Well, they're clearly prophets. All throughout history, God has sent prophets to his people and to their leaders. And not just one prophet, the story has not just two prophets, not just three prophets. It says multiple, multiple, multiple messengers and prophets. And what are they doing? They're warning, they're speaking to, and at times they're pleading with God's people and its leadership. And so we get a glimpse into, of course, the patience of the master, the patience of God. Now, I'll show you from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah was one of these servants, these prophets. And this is what he said. This is God speaking. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they, the people, did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. The Old Testament prophets were treated pretty terribly. Tradition has it. Prophet Amos was tortured. The prophet Ezekiel was murdered in Babylon. Jeremiah was murdered in Egypt. Ezekiel and Jeremiah murdered by the very people they were prophesying to. Isaiah, well, he met a pretty gruesome end. He was hiding in a log from bad King Manasseh. He got sawn in two. And the reason, the reason they all got treated so terribly is because God's people, especially the leadership who led the people of God, refused to listen to them. Just like this story, just like this parable. And yet God, the master, you see how patient he is. He doesn't send one, not two, not three. He just keeps going. Day after day, it says, again and again. Now, I just want to stop here and just ask, because it's worth asking, right? I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. You might be a follower of Jesus, you might not. But let me ask you, is God trying to get through to you right now? 
Or has he been trying to get through to you in any sort of way? Directly, indirectly, through his word, through other people's word, through coincidences, life circumstances. Sometimes it's tragedy, sickness. Is he trying to tell you something? And if he is, please let me urge you, don't ignore it. Only you would know. But don't ignore it. He is patient. He's so patient. He keeps going at it. He keeps warning. He keeps pleading. But you know what we'll see in this parable as well? His patience won't last forever. So please, if God is trying to get through to you, and only you know, then don't ignore him. All right, let's come back. What next? So what next in the story? Verse number six. He, the master had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, and remember, this parable is marked by the direct quotes, and this is the first one. This is why this is a part of the first section. And this is the key of the first section, the first point. He says, they will respect my son. Okay, so it's the first direct quote of any of the characters, which means it's important. So we know the master loves his vineyard. Because they're his, well, God loves his people. But the master also loves who? He loves his son. Uh, you know the language. He had one left a son, the beloved. He says it three times in different ways. It reminds me of um, when God tells Abraham, you may or may not know the story of God telling Abraham to take Isaac, your son your only son whom you love when the bible repeats things two or three times you know it's important so it's very clear there is no one more precious to this master than his son there's no one more precious to god than his son jesus after all the prophets all the ignoring and rejecting he gives his most precious messenger and most perfect representative. That's the master's love. Let's move to point number two. The second direct quotation comes pretty soon after. So verse seven. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now it's not really clear why plotting against and murdering the son would make them inherit? Like you would still think that, you know, why would they inherit it? It could be that they thought, well, if he sent the son, then maybe the owner is actually dead. Yeah, maybe they thought the master must be dead. He's sending his son to claim the land. Well, if we kill the son, then there's no more heir and it'll naturally pass on to us, the tenants. Maybe that's what they thought. We don't know, but whatever the case, we see the master's love and patience is directly opposite to what? The tenants and how wicked they are. I mean, as if what they did to the prophets, the, the servants weren't wicked enough. But really, all along, they've been doing this, right? They've acted as if they owned what they don't own, right? They acted as if this vineyard was theirs. And so they abused and murdered the servants, and as if that's not enough, now they're going to take action against the son because they act as if this is theirs. Now, they not only kill the son, but here we get the detail of 
them throwing him, his body, outside of the vineyard. You don't get that detail with the other servants, do you? This is not just killing. This is treating shamefully in the ancient world. If your body was not even buried and thrown out to the wild and exposed, that was a humiliating and is a terrible thing to do. Hugely disrespectful, hugely wicked. Now, as I said before, um, the tenants are the leaders, right? The leaders of God's Jewish people. And yes, that is primarily the message here. But you might also get a sense that this may be a small window into humanity as a whole. I mean, it is, isn't it? Like, like, remember, the leaders treat the vineyard as if it's theirs, even though it's not theirs. Well, what are we like as a whole, humanity? Well, we, God's creatures, are caretakers of God's world. We don't own the world. But we act as if we do, don't we? I don't know if you're aware of what's going on environmentally. It's hard not to know, but our environment, our, our physical world has been irreparably damaged and destroyed by humans, hasn't it? Uh, in 50 years, 60% of wildlife, just in five decades, 60% of all wildlife has been wiped out by human beings. 83% of all mammals that have ever existed we've destroyed, driven to extinction. 83%. But there's greater destruction when you look at how we treat each other. How the poor is exploited. How the innocent suffer in war. How women and children are trafficked. How the porn industry, making trillions, are destroying lives. How abuse happens even within our homes. This is us. The Bible says the word is sin. Sin is the tenant's attitude. Sin is our attitude. Not just doing bad stuff, breaking laws. Sin is when we make ourselves God, when we treat ourselves as if we own what isn't ours to own, the world as well as our own lives. And so like the parable, the Bible says that God has warned us again and again. He's spoken to us. He's pleaded with us. And then to cap it off, God obviously sends His Son. But when His Son comes, Jesus, and when Jesus comes perfectly demonstrating the heart of God, what do we as humanity do? We find Him a threat like the tenants. All right, God, don't tell us what to do. Don't you dare tell me how to live. Don't threaten my comfortable life. I have religion, but it's comfortable. Don't threaten that. Don't call me to radical self-sacrifice and obedience. That's offensive. And what do we do? We collectively take Jesus, the Son, and we kill Him. All right, so while the parable speaks against the Jewish leadership, they were directly the cause of Jesus' death. Verse number 12, they will now begin to remove, plot to remove Jesus once and for all. Three days later, they'll succeed. Right? We're looking at the last week of Jesus' life. They're going to kill him in three days. But the reality is they also represent all of humanity. Like We all killed Jesus. That's the truth, yeah? They might have pulled the trigger, but we supplied the gun. The, the sin in all of us, when we reject and replace God, that's what killed Jesus. Because if you don't want God to rule over you, then of course when God comes in human flesh, 
in his son, we're going to take him and we're going to put him on the cross. Of course, we're going to do that. Friends, it's your sin and my sin that put Jesus, the Son of God, precious, the most precious to God, beloved by the Father, we put him on the cross. I may not have hammered the nails in, but my rejection of God sealed his fate. You know about the question for God's surveys? Please get around and talk to your friends about that. Ask them, friends and family, what is the question you have for God? Now, perhaps one of the questions will be, and this often comes up, is, God, why can't you make yourself more obvious? And then the answer is often, well, you know, he did. He became a man. He sent his son, Jesus. That's pretty obvious. And then the follow-up question is, well, you know, if, if he sent Jesus now and Jesus came now and performed all those miracles and taught all he did and showed love, I would certainly believe him. We would believe him. That may be what you think. But of course that's wrong. Because God already did that. He already came. Right? He made himself obvious. He showed love. He did miracles. He preached. He taught. And what do we do? We killed him. What makes you think we're not going to do that again if he did it today? Because we would. We'd do it again. You see, when you understand the wickedness of the tenants against the love and patience of the master, and also when you understand how precious his only son is to him, and who here with children don't understand how precious your children are to you, right? When you understand that, then the judgment, which seems harsh, the judgment in this passage, it suddenly makes sense. Let me show you two chronicles. Another passage about God sending his servants. The Lord God of the ancestors sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath, anger of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. See, there is a time when God's patience runs out, especially because he's now sent his son in Isaiah 5, that love song, we didn't read the rest of it, but it's actually a tragic love song, as I said, has a tragic ending. The ending of Isaiah 5 is saying God's judgment is coming. And that's what we see in this story. Jesus says in verse 9, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, what else can he do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Again, sounds harsh, but if you understand what's going on, his patience, his love, the preciousness of his son. It makes sense, doesn't it? But, point number three, there is an unexpected twist. There's a third direct speech quoted, but it's not from the characters you'll notice. Jesus quotes a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. So that's our third point. Psalm 118, by the way, was also a psalm quoted when Jesus entered Jerusalem sitting on a donkey. When the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. So look at verse 10 as Jesus quotes and our final point. Haven't you read this passage of scripture, Jesus says? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Now, there's a story, uh, maybe an urban legend, a tradition that says when Solomon was building his temple, the first temple, they needed the right stone to lay as the cornerstone or the foundation stone, the first stone from which all other stones would find their reference point. They needed to find the right stone. They couldn't find the right stone until they looked in the reject pile. And the stone was found there. The rejected stone turned out to be the key cornerstone. Urban legend, that was the background to this psalm. But the psalm is a bit puzzling. I don't know if you looked at it in community groups this week, whether you found it a little bit puzzling of why Jesus quotes it here. I mean, what does this have to do with the parable? Yeah, seems a bit odd. How does the rejected but now cornerstone relate to the master's actions at the end of verse 9 of judgment and giving the vineyard to others? How does the quote answer the verse before it? Do you know what I mean? What's the relation? What's, it, what's this on about? Well, Jesus spoke uh, not English. Uh, he didn't even speak Greek. Uh, the Bible here, uh, most of the New Testament written in Greek, um, but they were people writing in Greek, but Jesus would have been speaking in Aramaic, which is a sort of related to the language of Hebrew. Now, why am I telling you that? It's because in Aramaic and Hebrew, the word stone and the word sun sound like each other. Stone is Eben, sun is Ben. All right? So in Jesus' original language that he would have spoken this verbally, there was a word play. The stone is the sun. The rejected stone is the rejected sun. And that's consistent. Um, every time Psalm 118 is quoted in the New Testament and it's done a few more times, it's all about Jesus. It's always about the sun. It's always about Jesus. So what's the message of Psalm 118? Well, even though the sun is rejected and murdered in the story, Jesus' point is God's plan hasn't been wrecked. See, the rejected and crucified son is part of God's plan to restore his people, the vineyard, back to himself and give them to someone better to look after. All right? What happens to the stone is what happens to the son showing us that God has a plan to bring his people back to himself, to restore his vineyard and give it to better managers. And that is really the gospel, the good news. Yes, when God sent his son to humanity, we rejected him and killed him, but that was no accident. It was always God's plan. Why? Because Jesus willingly gave up his life for his people's sins. He let their sin nail him to the cross so that he might take the punishment for their sin. It's a deliberate act of giving himself to be crucified so he might take the punishment for the very people who put him there in the first place. And by this incredible act of love and sacrifice, he is extending an invitation. He's inviting those who crucified him, that's all of us indirectly, inviting us to come to him, to be forgiven and be his forever his vineyard, his people forever. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just invite you? Jesus is inviting you today. Come to him, have your sins forgiven, be his forever. All right, that's the good news. The rejected stone becomes the cornerstone of God's plan. So who are the others that God gives the vineyard to? Because remember the, the stone quote in Psalm 118 is somehow related to the Verse before, so who are the others that God gives a vineyard to? 
who does he entrust his precious vineyard and people to now that he's brought judgment on the leaders, the tenants? Well, I think the context points to just one answer, doesn't it? If he quotes Psalm 118, which is about the son, straight after he says he will pass the vineyard to others, then I think the person he's going to pass it to is going to be none other than the son. Yeah? That's how verses 9 and 10 are related. It's the son. The heir who will now take direct ownership and management of the vineyard. Now, of course, the parable doesn't tell us how the dead son could possibly take ownership. But the parable is not meant to tie up all the loose ends. We know, don't we? We know how this happens because Jesus dies, but he is raised three days later. The son dies, but is raised three days later to be the Lord of his people. That's consistent with the whole Bible. There no more will there be wicked leaders and bad shepherds because Jesus is raised so that he can be the good shepherd. It's from John's gospel. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and calls them by name and who will never let them go. He's the new owner of the vineyard or the new manager of the vineyard who was also the owner. And Jesus, also from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, He is the true vine, if you want to pick up the vine image. And we, His people, are the branches. And we are nourished and given life by being connected to Him, and we bear fruit when we are connected to Him. Just to mix metaphors a little bit. All right, let me finish by applying this. There are two groups that I think this passage will speak to. Number one, if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you are Jesus' people, you're the vineyard, all right? And you need to know that all of Jesus' people have direct access to Jesus, your leader, your shepherd, your vine. We have direct access by His Word, the Bible, and through His Holy Spirit who is in us. Just think, if you're a Christian, how great is that? How great is it that we can be led by someone who loves us so much that he would give his life for us? Because that's who we're led by. And so if you here are in a place of uncertainty and fear, if you're feeling lost, or perhaps feeling abandoned and alone, I'm God is reminding you today that you're not alone, abandoned, lost, because Jesus is leading you. You may not feel it, but He is, and He will, if you let Him, continue to lead you. Now, that's easier said than done, because being led by Jesus doesn't mean in this life anyway, all sunshines and roses. It can, sometimes, it can often, it may be really painful and the reason why being led by Jesus can be painful is, well, again, let's use the vine metaphor. Vines need to be tended, and part of tending a vine or a tree or any plant is to prune it. Branches need to be pruned to increase fruitfulness. So Jesus leading us can sometimes be painful, but see it as a pruning. 
Because sins in our lives need to be exposed. And faith needs to be refined. And that is painful. That often comes through struggle, sacrifice, and sickness and suffering. But let me just say that your master, your leader, your vine dresser, your, the son, he knows what he is doing. He does. He is doing it to make you more fruitful and to increase your ultimate joy. So can I just say, Christian followers of Jesus, do not resist him. Let him do that. And it may be that today you need to surrender to your leader, the Lord Jesus afresh. The second group I want to speak to, and it's particularly relevant today as we induct our brother Marshall, church leaders. If you're a church leader at any level, pastors all the way to Sunday school leaders, youth group leaders, CG leaders. This reminds us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the senior pastor of our church. We have the awesome privilege, if you're a church leader, of being his lieutenants, his under-shepherds. So please, let's remember not to abuse that. Don't treat your position as an entitlement don't use it to serve yourselves. Leaders, we must love Jesus' people like He loves them. Remember, they're precious to Him. And as, as His under-shepherds, let's do everything to protect them and help them be fruitful. If need be, give your life for their sake. Because Jesus did that. Then when the chief shepherd appears says 1 Peter 5, we will be rewarded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our chief shepherd, thank you for laying your life down for us. Thank you that you loved us enough to go to the cross. Father, thank you that you loved us enough to send us your most precious son. We pray that we would follow Jesus, trust Jesus, and we pray for those who are church leaders that we would love your people like Jesus. Amen.